0: From our studio in San Francisco's The Civic Kitchen, this is Salt and Spine.
1: I have really no interest in proselytizing that natural wine and saying that this is better for you and you should drink it. I do like opening up the world of natural wine to people because sure. I believe it's so much more exciting and I get great satisfaction out of seeing people like get thrilled, and which is not something that's happening with a conventional wine.
0: Hi there, I'm Brian Hogan Stewart, and you're listening to Salt and Spine, Stories Behind Cookbooks. And welcome to day two of our Drinks Week, where we're sitting down all week with leading cocktail and wine authors. And you just heard from today's guest, Alice Firing. Now, Alice is the James Beard-winning author of numerous books on wine and has been the leading voice of natural wine for nearly two decades. She's the creator of The Firing Line, the first independent natural wine newsletter, which she launched in 2013. And she joined us around the launch of her latest book, a compact and delightfully illustrated little guide titled Natural Wine for the people what it is where to find it how to love it. In today's show we're talking with Alice about the history of natural wine and the current natural wine movement, about how she's used her powerful voice to change and challenge a male-dominated industry, and of course we're playing a little wine-themed game. All of that today on this Drinks Week episode of Salt and Spine. So let's head now to our studio inside the Civic Kitchen Cooking School in San Francisco where Alice Firing joined us to talk cookbooks. Hi, Alice. How are you? Thanks so much for joining us on Salt and Spine.
1: I am really happy to be here. <laughs> we're nice s- to have you.
0: Yes, we're so glad to have you. We're here to talk about your latest book, Natural Wine for the People. Indeed. Um, but let's start sort of at the beginning of your career and then we'll work back to this book and more about natural wine in mm-hmm. a minute. So I understand you sort of stumbled into wine by chance, right? You had a, I think there's a story around a college roommate that sort of right. played a role here.
1: Or uh, when I went up to Boston for graduate school and my roommate was in the wine business or was trying to be in the wine business. And so she started wine tastings at our apartment. Okay. I had already had an interest in wine, but that took it to a different level.
0: Sure. And so you would uh, spend time, like, tasting these wines before people came over, right, to sort of figure out what you wanted to drink?
1: Well, not before, because you okay. got open when people, but I was really got quick. Got it. And I developed a very, like, a speed tasting.
0: Yeah. And you mention in the book that you've um, started drinking wine when you were in diapers, you say?
1: Yes.
0: <laughs> is that is that a literal description? Of I like... think
1: it's literal. My <laughs> mother is horrified um, by that, but... I come from an Orthodox Jewish home, right. and there's no taboo on drinking, and it's Friday night, right. so I would have seltzer and really disgusting
0: sweet wine. Right. Mixed together. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and you also, I understand, have a really receptive nose, which has played a role. And did that sort of draw you to wine, the fact that you could sort of...
1: That I smelled everything before I put it into my mouth, yes.
0: Yes. And and you you have a tendency to smell everything, or you have a really receptive nose, or both?
1: I was ridiculed endlessly by my parents, who were trying to get me to stop. Okay. Uh, So I just did it and I just did it because I loved smelling.
0: Yeah. And so what is it that appealed to you about wine? So you said you had an interest in it. You have this sort of roommate in college who's bringing in a lot of wines Mm -hmm. for you to be, you know, to be exposed to. Mm -hmm. What is it that sort of appealed to at wine? And is there a moment that sort of like clicked for you that this was your path?
1: Well, there were several, there were several moments. One was the moment when all of a sudden I realized I knew what I was looking at, at a wine list. And it made sense when I never even expected it to ever. I wasn't going for any sort of wine enlightenment. Then there was a bottle of 1969 Barolo that I had in 1980 that made me realize the extreme beauty that can happen from wine. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Then when I came back to New York to write, and it wasn't not necessarily to be a wine writer, it was one of the things that I wrote about when I. When the wine world changed so much to be, if you remember, around 2000 when it was really very oaky and fruity and alcoholic, and it seems like all the wines in the world tasted that way, right? and I realized there were some, not many, small wines that still had that sense of beauty that I experienced in the 80s, that's when I stumbled in what we now call natural wine, and at that point... I became a wine writer, even though
0: I was writing about wine before.
1: So it was never anything, even then, that I thought I'd be writing about exclusively.
0: Okay. And let's pause for a minute then to sort of define natural wine for people, if we can, um, before we get too deep into it. So how do you describe natural wine? I think in your book you say it's wine without crap in it. Can you tell us what that means? And usually
1: I I start with that and then I I work back. Okay. (laughs) So it's wine without crap in it. Uh So it starts with organic viticulture. Right some form of organic viticulture. And then it is made with none of the seventy two plus ingredients and processing agents that can be added into wine. And some of them are pretty noxious. Right. And maybe just a little bit of sulfur. Uh huh. And that's basically it. I right. most of the conventional wines do have so many additives in it that it really gets in between me and my and my wine. The way just the way ice cream with shit in it. I can say that sure. on the air right Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. <laughs> Curse all you, you know, want. Like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, I, so that it's just that. And then people say, well, great, but how does it taste differently? And it's the difference between packaged bread and something from what is the current hot bakery in San Francisco. Yeah. So, right. You know, so like from tartine or something. Sure. So, it's huge difference when it has life, vivacity, it feels good in your body.
0: And you really sort of stumbled upon it, as you said, in the early 2000s, is that right?
1: About 99, 2000. Okay. I was writing a book for a Food & Wine magazine, and I did so much tasting, and I realized that the wines that I loved were disappearing, and they were so much so they were an endangered species. So okay. I did a lot of research on the additives and the processes, like reverse osmosis and centrifuging wine. And understanding the impact on the taste. And at that point, I felt more like a whistleblower than a wine writer. Yeah. Because none of my colleagues were writing about it. So that's what happened. And there I am 20 years later.
0: Yeah. I mean, you sort of refer to it as your whistleblower moment. Um and really, I think was sort of a key moment in elevating you to one of the leading voices on natural wine when you were bringing attention to these additives and the way that wine was being produced.
1: Well, when you're the sole voice for so long, <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> yeah, so I think I kind of. Yeah, they're earned that OG status. <laughs>
0: <laughs> sure. Yeah. Some people, I think, hear the term natural wine and they think, well, well, what, why is it not natural? You know, wasn't yeah. wine hundreds of years ago
1: exactly. natural wine? It was natural.
0: So can you talk to us a little bit about sort of maybe the history of wine? And, and you say in the book too that every generation has sort of a natural wine revolution. Pretty much. So it's sort of cyclical in that way.
1: Yeah. There's, I also make the point that as soon as wine was a commodity, as long uh-huh. as people were making money off of it, there would always be someone looking to cheapen it to make more money. Right. Or to create some sort of fraudulent wine and present it as a real wine. Right. And this has been going on since Roman times. I don't think the Georgians did it, but the Romans definitely did it. <laughs> yeah. Um, like, uh, the wine from Mount Vesuvius was probably the most knocked-off wine of its time. And the Middle Ages around phylloxera. There was this, which phylloxera was the louse that ate most of the vines of Europe. Okay, and there was a book in the late eighteen hundreds that got published in, I think, four different languages: Portuguese, French. It was started in French, which was basically how to make a fr- how to make an artificial wine. Okay, basically because they didn't have any grapes, and right? They had a they had to fake it. Yeah. So,
0: and how would they fake it?
1: With resin. With raisinated grapes, uh-huh. the, the leftover raisinated grapes that were then dehydrated, and all sorts of like, yeah, you know, gum arabic. Some of the things that are still done today, right. arsenic.
0: Okay, arsenic yeah.
1: was used for generations. Yeah. yeah. So, like I said, some of the additives were really pretty noxious. Yeah. And. Let's see, the last, there's just trying to think. That was probably the last major one until okay. the one
0: we have now. Sure. And the one we have now, I think you sort of say started maybe in the seventies in with Marcel Lapierre. Yes. Is that sort Very of good. who you credit? Yes. Um, and that's in Beaujolais, right? Right. Beaujolais yeah.
1: and with Jules Chauvet, who's really the granddaddy.
0: Uh huh. So we're looking at maybe 50 years now of this current sort of revolution, right. but it's taken quite a bit of time well, for the American audience.
1: It's the first natural wine bar in Paris was 1981. Okay. So then put 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 yes. by the end of by actually 2000 there were several natural wine bars in Paris. Yeah. And then it really started kicking off the past twenty years, I guess.
0: Yeah, and especially I think especially the past, the past decade. seven, yeah, past seven. Okay, so let's say you're a, a listener of Salt and Spine, and you haven't had natural wine right. before. How would you describe it to someone, like the process of tasting it and what you might experience? There's a quote I love, but I'm going to let you let you ex- there answer is a first. Quote that you love. There's a quote what I love it? that let's um hear it. <laughs> you have that you say when you drink a natural wine, the first sip will be different from the last. Right. What do you mean by that? Can you explain? That because that?
1: it's I. I think of additives as fixatives.
0: Uh-huh. You no, know,
1: whether it's hair gel or something that you spray on a charcoal, you know, drawing sure. to keep it in place. So you can be sure that the first and the last will taste the same. Right. And that's probably your first tip off that you're in the presence of an in quote not natural one. Okay, yeah. There's no way to say what it will taste like, mm-hmm. but it should be vibrant, alive. And changeable. So that's that's really because I if we had one right here, I could tell you well, what to expect. But, you know, sometimes they're wild and crazy wines yeah. where you feel like they're a bit hallucinogenic, like they're just like bouncing off the walls. And sometimes they're very elegant and you go, really, that's not a natural wine? And sometimes because I'm so used to it, I don't notice if a wine has some cider notes sure. or some... Vinegary notes, which it can have. Sure. If it, especially if it's a slow fermentation. I, I don't notice those at all. And they're just part of a, a beautiful experience. But sometimes I could show you a perfectly natural wine that you go, really? This is natural? Yeah. Well, do you like it? And you go, oh my God, it's yeah. delicious.
0: Yeah. Yeah, there's incredible natural wines. But but you noted on this uh, note of cider, yeah. um, which I think is one of the common misconceptions around natural wine. You actually have a whole section in the book mm-hmm. sort of dispelling some of the myths or misconceptions like that they taste like cider or like that you can't age them. Can you tell us some of the misconceptions people have? have around natural wine and how we can sort of break those and learn to understand what natural wine really is.
1: So uh, a lot of people think that all natural wine is cloudy Uh and it's true that some natural wines are cloudy. What natural wines probably won't be are super, super high polished crystalline. If you see something that's really, really crystalline. So with natural wine, it's kind of reversed a traditional way of evaluating one would look at a beautiful crystalline glass and say, oh, that's beautiful. Look how clear it is. And for a natural wine lover looking at that, they go, what the hell did they do to <laughs> that wine to get it so clear? But not every wine is cloudy. And the reason it's not cloudy, it depends if you bottle straight from the vat, the top of the vat will be clear. The bottom will be cloudy. Okay. So that's just that.
0: So that's, let's put that one to rest. Right. So and, different bottles from the same bat can be absolutely yeah have a lot of yeah. variants.
1: And some some winemakers will stop before it gets really cloudy,
0: okay, mm-hmm. and
1: just stop there, and then maybe do a home bottling of their
0: sure. of the other
1: stuff. Uh, all natural wine tastes like cider, right. like hard cider or apple cider, and some have, as I said before, cidery notes. But if everything just tastes a hundred percent like cider, like probably it's really close to being. Uh, vinegar and maybe that's not the way that wine should taste.
0: It. Right. Yeah.
1: So, but it is, there is a good reason for that cidery notes. As I said, that hard apple cider has a very, very slow fermentation. And when a wine has a slow fermentation, it does develop that high note. Sure. So the same thing with a slowly fermented wine. That's sure. Natural. Let's see. Uh, natural wine stone age. All the ones right. that you brought up. Well, <laughs> I consider actually 10 years without any sulfites whatsoever aging okay and i have a whole list of them in the book that really age well and this weekend i had some beautiful wine from catalonia that were that was nine years ten years old okay and they were just not going anywhere those ones are going to last for another 20 if a wine is from a really beautiful piece of land with mm-hmm. really good terroir if it's made under really good conditions and if it's made to last it will last
0: sure I love dispelling those misconceptions, which leads me into this idea that natural wine has become sort of a controversial topic, I guess we could say. I guess so. Like, it feels like it's divisive for some reason. Does does that feel accurate to you to say categorize it in that way? It's accurate. It's very accurate. I'm not exactly
1: sure. Well, I am sure why. There are just so many different reasons why. One is that, as you brought up before, some people may
0: not like being called not natural. Uh, some people you mean some producers, some, producers, some companies. Like some may take yeah, umbrage sure, right. with that. Mm-hmm. And of course,
1: I would say, well, uh, Wonder Bread is not natural. Yeah. You right. know, you're putting stuff in your wine. Like, what is natural about that? Right. Well, we want to create a, a reliable product. So that's great. I'm glad you're creating the reliable product. I actually want an unreliable product.
0: Yeah, but I you desire Or just yes, mm-hmm.
1: something that doesn't taste the same every year. Sure. Right? I really live for that difference. Another reason is some people don't like to be thought of as wrong for the past 30 years. Right. Like they have a whole cellar full of wines that are not natural. Right. So what are they doing with that? What would they sold a bill of goods uh, the whole education system has to be changed. There's just a lot of resistance because it is a new guard coming up, and the old guard is a bit trenchant. yeah, the other reason is big business. There's a whole industry of the the laboratories that create these products that's billions of dollars at stake. And if natural wine becomes a big thing without natural ing- without ingredients, well, what happens to them? Right. So there are a lot of good economic reasons
0: for yeah. it. Yeah. But can you make the case, I mean, you sort of have, but what's your sort of like bottom line argument for someone for why they should choose a natural wine versus a conventional wine? Well, it really boils down to the ingredients.
1: It boils down to the fact
0: that they are very
1: exciting. Mm-hmm. I don't really, do I want to tell somebody that they shouldn't eat Wonder Bread <laughs> or if they really like fast, well, fast food. I mean, it's not yeah. good for you. Right. I have really no interest in proselytizing about natural wine. Okay. And saying that this is better for you and you should drink it. I do like opening up the world of natural wine to people because sure. I believe it's so much more exciting. And I get great satisfaction out of seeing people like get thrilled and which is not something that's happening with a conventional wine. Yeah. So, you know, it's like I have a hard time with that, especially because there's not enough Natural wine to go around. Right. So, right. <laughs> so, like, don't drink natural wine. There's not enough. <laughs> <laughs> don't drink it. Yeah. <laughs> but if you do, you're going to be really heavily rewarded. Right.
0: I think some people have this conception of natural wine as being a healthier alternative. Yes. Is there, a, which I think I'm, I'm curious for your take on that. And I'm curious if there's like also a problem. There's sort of a challenging lens with any sort of alcohol being billed as a healthy thing for some. Right. Are there health benefits to natural wine?
1: Well, you know, before there was medicine, there was wine and there was booze and that was medicine. Uh-huh. And if you go around to, uh, there's still a lot of lists um, or recipes in France about how to treat certain ailments with certain wines.
0: Okay, yeah.
1: However, wine is not medicine and is not a health drink. However, it is healthier for you without a doubt, and I do believe that, the way I believe that you are what you eat. Uh-huh. And I know people who have all sorts of allergic reactions to wine. And there are a lot of like added tannins that people are allergic to certain enzymes that people are allergic to. And these are not tested, but I have guided so many people to natural wines and they discovered that yes, they can drink. So I mean, it has to be. And as we were saying before, I was saying before that yes, you do get hangovers from natural wine (laughs) without a doubt. Yes. But maybe you can drink a little bit more. Right. And that also tells you something the body does process alcohol differently with a natural wine and the first studies of that happened in April
0: yeah there yeah, are actual there studies are. now yeah wow. out of out of Torino okay yeah it was pretty interesting interesting yeah. we'll be right back with the second half of our conversation with Alice firing author of natural wine for the people every Tuesday on salt and spine we love sitting down with another of your and my favorite cookbook authors to tell the stories behind cookbooks from Jacques Papin and Nigella Lawson to Samin Nosrat and Alison Roman, and today's guest, Alice Firing, Salt and Spine is the leading podcast featuring in person interviews with your favorite authors. Plus, we publish delicious and exclusive recipes, hold cookbook giveaways for listeners like you, host incredible live shows, and so much more. Salt and Spine truly brings cookbooks to life, and we can only do that thanks to listeners like you. You can join the Salt and Spine community today to support our effort to bring you top notch interviews and the best. Cookbook content starting at just $2 a month. Find out more and join the Salt and Spine community at patreon.com backslash salt and spine. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com backslash salt and spine. Salt and Spine is proud to have storytelling partners like Edible San Francisco. In the upcoming issue, hear from three women: Lenora Strada of Three Babes Bake Shop, Janelle St. Jean of Pietisserie, and Elizabeth Simon of Revenge Pies on how they're speaking out on behalf of women in minority-owned businesses, building up their operations, and paying it forward to their communities. Subscribe now to ensure you don't miss compelling stories of how San Francisco eats at EdibleSanFrancisco.com. And now, back to our conversation with Alice Firing, author of Natural Wine for the People. So you've written a number of books on wine. I have. Um, You've won the James Beard Award for your writing on wine. You really are sort of an established figure in wine writing, and particularly natural wine. I don't have any data to back this up, but my exposure to natural wine has always sort of been women-driven. Maybe it's because I live in the East Bay and all of the great natural wine shops I go to are owned by awesome women. But I, I do know that, like, overall, winemakers are still, I think, to the tune of almost 90% men. Mm-hmm. It, it, would it be fair to like say that women in some way are leading the natural wine movement? Is that just totally, um, conjecture on my part?
1: Well, I love that idea. The women certainly have had a great part in the uh-huh. natural wine movement and leading the wine movement. I never thought about that.
0: <laughs> Maybe you can do some digging <laughs> and get back to us on it. <laughs> I never thought about that,
1: but there's certainly a number of prominent women in natural wine business.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, know, I have one study I know of 3,700 wineries in California, only 10% had a female winemaker, for instance. So I think on the whole, that's, that's not natural wine, that's all sort of winemakers on the whole.
1: Well, California is a different story. Yeah, it's a very different story. And um, winemaking here is different is it's it is so corporate and it is very expensive to start your own thing and banks don't give loans as easily to women as they do to men i think that's still true and that needs to change and when we see that we probably will see more women winemakers
0: yeah and you've sort of been the leading voice for natural wine for decades and you are a woman (laughs) and you've come under attack i mean and including some relatively i think misogynistic attacks even that's recently so earlier this year. <laughs> right. That's so relative. How have you sort of grappled with, with being this leading voice as a woman in this like Uber male dominated industry. That's also sort of fraught with all of these, as we were noting egos that are sort of t- tied up into their business and the right. way they do things.
1: I think one way is that as a writer, I get to hide behind my computer a lot and I don't have to interact with people on a day to day basis, which certainly feeds my nature as an introvert. Uh huh. Um, They, but it has become increasingly annoying. And also, I wonder if my generation just accepted it more, you know, just, which is very different. And I have to say the whole Me Too movement has had a powerful effect on me about speaking out. I used to just forget about it. I used to forget that this happened. And people would ask about, well, how has being a woman affected your career? And I would just say, oh, probably the fact that I'm five feet probably affected it more than, but it's, there is a boys club. Um, and it's very interesting in the latest attack to see that boys club play out. Yeah. Uh, there were... Um, should I just briefly? Yeah, there was bring a satire
0: piece, right? Or I yeah, mean, supposed, a, satire. A supposed satire. Supposed right. satire
1: piece. And this is by a person that has been supposedly satirizing me since 2010. Okay. Uh, when mostly because of the battle for wine and love and how I saved the Wilton Parkerization, where this woman took on the
0: biggest voice in this woman, meaning you, me. <laughs> took on the biggest, <laughs> biggest wine critic and yeah. in the world.
1: Uh-huh. Um, and his portrayal of me. And usually other women he was criticizing was always sexualized to a point where uh cringe worthy, yeah, like soft porn treatment, and the guys would be incontinent in nursing homes and you know, like Robert Parker the, and a bunch of other people. But I got this rather skeezy treatment and the last one really kind of was the last draw, mostly because the piece was called a tribute Alice firing's tribute to Robert Parker so a lot of people thought I wrote that book and unlike this guy who obviously is obsessed with me not everybody knows who I am right. so when they see Alice firing's tribute they thought and that was I couldn't tolerate that so yeah. I, that's when I spoke out
0: yeah well there's so many similarities too when we think about this man having wielding so much power i mean as i was reading your book i was yeah. so Intrigued to think about the fact that like the entire wine industry just sort of like catered to his taste and his desires. Um, and there's so many similarities. I think it's seeing that the attacks that you faced for really standing up to him and sort of pushing the wine industry in a different direction.
1: Right. There's also other stuff when people bring up that I did actually have something to do with changing that whole uh train wreck from going to those really outlandish kind of wines to something where there's way more variety and then people go oh yeah she thinks change everything <laughs> it's <laughs> like you know like if i was a guy would they do that right but i don't think so yeah i don't think so
0: yeah well, your latest book yeah. is Natural Wine for the People. How yes. did you decide that this is the that this is the book you would make? You know, it's sort of sciency in a lot of ways. You really mm-hmm. break down how natural wine is produced, um sort of the process, but also I think at the same time it feels like a resource for like a novice who wants to know where to find natural wine and how to buy and taste it.
1: Well, I think that I've always written books that worked for the novice and for the wine geek. Uh-huh. And I was particularly aware because this was supposed to be a guidebook for the novice, but okay. yeah, knowing a little bit about science kind of helps it, things along. Yeah, it helps. And I think that the illustrations really helped make it just completely user friendly. Yeah. But as we're rushing headlong into the mainstreaming of natural wine and there are so many misconceptions about it, I wanted there to be a guidebook.
0: That's yeah. just
1: it. I just, it was time. Yeah. It was time to have a little cute book that told yeah. you about that one.
0: It is a cute little book. And I, there's another, uh, part in the book of your, uh, eight tenants of great wine, right. which I loved. And I particularly loved the first two because I think we talk, people talk about wine so much and sort of talk about like great wine has, you know, this quality or this thing. But your first two are emotional impact, mm-hmm. which I want to hear you talk a little bit about. And then that the wine has life right. is the second one. Can yeah. you talk a little bit about those two tenants of yours?
1: Well, just if I could wind back about what sure. these tenants are for, people right. want to know how I evaluate a wine. Okay. And I developed this to actually be a judge at Vin Italy on a natural wine kind of tasting. Okay. And I wasn't going to give it a score because it's anathema to me. Right. So I had to come up with some sort of system. And so what are the most important things for me? For me, the most important thing which makes the difference is for the great wine is, is that emotional response. I remember the first time that I... Well, not the first time, but one wine that I gave Frank Bruni.
0: Okay. At, this is at a friend's New York Times yeah, yeah, food, time food critic.
1: Yeah, uh, New York Times food critic, ex. Uh-huh, uh, right. Former. And now up-ed writer at a friend's brunch, and I gave him um, a patapon fr- Pinot Denise from Loire. Okay. And he just burst into laughter. And he said, what the hell is this? <laughs> and it was... Such a beautiful reaction, and I noted that that is just what I want in a wine. Yeah. Sometimes I get that. Sometimes I get awe. Sometimes I go whoa, or just huh. That's an emotional reaction too. Sometimes right. it's like it get this away from me, but sometimes it get this away from me. If there's something else compelling that brings you back, that doesn't even have to be a negative. But we forget that the important thing about a wine is that you want to drink it. Sure. So the second one is. What was the second one? That it has life. It has (laughs) life. And that goes back to what you had brought up that the first sip is different from the second. Right. That it is living. Wine reacts to oxygen. Right. It likes being in the air. And it's fun to watch that dance. And if it's not dancing, something's Mm. wrong. Yeah. So it really. no, nobody wants to drink a dead wine and you might get a dead wine if it's cooked, if somebody leaves a bottle of wine on a, on a radiator.
0: Right. That
1: is going to cook that wine and cook out the life. Right. So it's really an extremely important part
0: of that. Yeah. I love that if it's not dancing. Yeah. Um, so natural wine is sort of the, I, I would say the moment we're in this natural wine moment. Mm-hmm. There's a reference. I'm wondering what, go, what happens next? You sort of say one that natural wine will stop being called natural wine maybe and yes. it'll just be wine, right. but also you make a reference to pot wine, to cannabis infused wine. I'm wondering, yeah. like, is there something else on the horizon that we should be watching for? You're the
1: First person to bring that up, I am okay. I I
0: saw that in the book and I was like, I was so intrigued. Cannabis infused wine,
1: I had to bring it up because people are, you know, on the west coast, especially, uh huh. Yeah, Uh, yeah, that's going to be, I think, a novelty. I think it's going to be more like in in the vermouth, and I think a lot of people Mm -hmm. are making pot vermouth. Okay, and I I go into it in the book, yeah, because it is an infused one, and uh, I don't think. Pot wine or pot added to one is ever going to make it a an important one. Sure. And you don't really want to waste an important wine by infusing it with pot. Sure. But a new kind of vermouth, why the hell not? Yeah. Yeah.
0: It has your blessing. Awesome. Uh, totally. <laughs> awesome.
1: <laughs> yeah. It's an interesting thing. I think I have the story in there. The first time I had a pot wine. I had heard about it and I didn't, somebody just gave me a glass uh-huh. at a party and I put my nose in it and I went like stems. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and they laughed because, and then I said, Oh my God, it's a pot one.
0: <laughs> yeah, right. There's your receptive nose <laughs> <Right>. once again. <laughs> <Right. Yeah. laughs> it was funny. Um Well, we always end with a little game. Okay. So um, there's a, a section in the book, of course, on how to describe wine as you're tasting wine. Mm-hmm. And th- there's a little blurb, a little sort of sidebar, I guess I would call it, that you offer some descriptors. But a lot of times we turn to food and okay. other tastes yes. as context for how we might describe what we're tasting. Absolutely. So I've got a bunch of cards next to you that have different categories, but each of them you'll see has an ingredient on it. So I'm wondering if you can draw a handful three, or maybe four, and see if you might, out of the creativity of your mind, give us a wine-tasting explanation that sort of builds on those flavors. So for instance, let's say you draw gummy bears as an ingredient, okay. and you're tasting a wine, how do you sort of tell us that there's a gummy bear on the palate?
1: Whew, I don't know whether is I can do this. Is this challenging? I know. I always
0: try to come up with games that aren't too hard, but and are fun. I feel like it is. Was-
1: picking tarot cards
0: here. <laughs> yeah, it's determining Do your I fate. Do I look at one
1: at a time? Sure, let's okay. let's
0: reveal them. Let's let's say what okay, they are. Okay, I got?
1: I got broccoli.
0: Bro- no, I don't a- know if I've ever had a broccoli. Okay. So on wine, let's gonna, like, see, let's what, I see what we've got. Yeah. Okay,
1: I've got a wine here. We got some broccoli. Oof. Vanilla bean paste. i would much rather have broccoli than vanilla bean paste. <laughs> Interesting. I'm a vegetarian, I got wagyu beef. Oh, no. <laughs> but I'll just go with blood on that one. Okay. okay? <laughs> yes. I don't need shrimp, <laughs> but I smell it, so I know the yeah, iodine okay. smell. Right? Uh, and chips.
0: Okay, so oh, we're man, imagining a like, wine woo. that's like.
1: Okay, yeah. I got it. Okay, what we have in front of me is a very flawed one. <laughs> uh, so we've got a bloody vanilla beanie, herbal gaseous. What we have mm. is kind of. Uh, we have a really conventional wine okay. that was made totally cookie cutter and really down rent.
0: Yeah, and you know that from what? From well, from the broccoli. The broccoli
1: is going to be in excess of so it's H two S, right? I'm thinking
0: steamed. I'm not going roasted right. sure. here. Yeah, steamed. But broccoli. I could
1: also go. I could also go fresh
0: on there. Okay. No, yeah,
1: but I'm going to choose steamed overcooked sulfurous.
0: Okay. Yep.
1: Vanilla bean, oak chips.
0: Sure. Mm-hmm. Wagyu beef, added tannin. Yeah, because you do. I do sort of get like a blood taste sometimes with wine, and yeah. wh- wh- that's coming from tannins. Usually.
1: Well, no, I just changed you what changed. I change okay. it. If I had different descriptors, uh-huh. I would have gone bloody with the wagyu beef. Okay. I think I'm changing the rules on you.
0: Okay, go for right? it. Yeah.
1: But now that I have here, I'm going with a very chunky. Okay. Though I don't know whether the Wagyu beef is chunky or silky. I haven't even... Usually if somebody is next to me, I will go into their food and sniff it and <laughs> cut sure. it. But I've never been next to anybody to Wagyu, so I don't know. Okay. But could I go chunky there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm going chunky. And to go chunky, I'm going added tannin because we
0: want texture. Okay, yeah.
1: Shrimp. So we've got an iodine flavor there that may come... From a fining agent from crustaceans.
0: Okay. And that's an additive that's yeah. added to right. some wines. So Interesting. Some wines.
1: And the chives is another. So we've got a mercaptan. Chives chives and garlic would be some. The technical term when you get that in a wine would be mercaptans. And that is a flaw. Okay, so what I have here is a wine that I would never ever put
0: into my mouth. None of these I things. I would smell
1: yeah. it and immediately go dreck.
0: Yeah, that's so fascinating to learn where each of those things, sort of those tastes, come from.
1: But you know, this is a fascinating game. I don't think we're running out of time here. I just, what if you gave me this and say. Like, construct a wine that really you want to, you want to drink. Right. I'd be super challenged.
0: You would. What if you drew three more and let's see if, or or three or five more and let's see if any of them appeal to you. I'm curious if, if if you're going to get anything that sort of you would want to see in a wine. And I, I didn't sort these cards in any particular way. So we'll see what you end up with.
1: I'm going with two secret ingredients. Yeah. Pickle. Oh. (laughs) 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 Nutmeg and grape jelly.
0: How about grape jelly? All right, you know, so grape uh, jelly. There's,
1: um, I that's like sugar. I am going into a rustic wine from Vermont before they started making really good wine, but somebody's home wine in Vermont, which, and they're working with a um, a hybrid grape that is maybe it's um, Marquette, and it was raised in old wood. Okay. And so we sometimes, the wood had a little bit of pickle, gave it a little pickling. And the nutmeg also comes from the wood.
0: But it's not
1: necessarily bad. So what I'm getting is a rustic grapey wine Uh that has been in old wood that maybe wasn't the most hygienic. Okay. But it's still rustic, and it could be you go over and say, Oh, this is okay. This is decent.
0: Yeah. Like a rustic table wine at a farmhouse dinner or something. Exactly. And just a little tiny bit of pickle. Sure. Okay. Not much. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Man, I am so intrigued by your answers to those cards. I could play that with with you all day. That's so fun. Yeah. Well, this was so much fun, Alice. Thank you so much for joining us.
1: It was a pleasure to be here.
0: And that's our show for today. Thank you so much for listening. As always, you can find bonus content and recipes from all of our episodes on saltandspine.com. Remember, if you like hearing from your favorite authors on Salt and Spine, and I hope you do, please click subscribe wherever you're listening. And of course, you can join the Salt and Spine community and support our show at patreon.com backslash saltandspine. Our show today was produced by me, Brian Hogan-Stewart, and our kitchen correspondent is Sarah Barney. The Salt and Spine original theme song was created by Brunch for Lunch. Salt and Spine is recorded at the Civic Kitchen in San Francisco's Mission District. The Civic Kitchen offers hands-on classes and events for home cooks. You can find out more at civickitchensf.com. Thanks, as always, to Jen Nurse, Chris Bonamo and the Civic Kitchen team, to Edible San Francisco, and to Celia Sack at Omnivore Books. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories behind the drinks books you love. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend.
1: Hey, happy listener. I'm Yardley. And I'm Dan. And I'm Dave. And we are the hosts of the true crime podcast, Small Town Dicks. On our podcast, detectives from small towns all around the world give us their first-hand accounts of the memorable crimes they investigated in their small town. The new season of Small Town Dicks is out now, but if you're new to the podcast and you want to start at the beginning, we have over 125 episodes for you to binge. So please join us for an original take on true crime. Small Town Dicks, available wherever you like to listen.